Support for CJSW podcasts comes from listeners like you. Visit FundingDrive.ca and join thousands of people who make independent radio available in Calgary and beyond. That everything gets worse, I don't think that's credible either. These are cliches. I think history has a very peculiar set of dynamics. Also, it's regionally bound. You know, something happens in the Arab world, may not happen in Southeast Asia, etc. That's Vijay Prashad, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on history and politics, zigs and zags, part one of a special two-part program. History and politics is replete with zigs and zags into all kinds of unexpected directions. Take, for example, the Shah of Iran. He looked impregnable on his throne until he was toppled by massive street demonstrations. Who could have predicted that the suicide of a street vendor in a small town in Tunisia would lead to the overthrow of an entrenched dictatorship and revolts across the Arab Middle East? Or that a popular uprising in Armenia would lead to the ouster of an oligarchic regime in that country, or that a real estate mogul and reality TV host would become president of the United States. History and politics are full of surprises. Our guest today is historian and journalist Vijay Prashad. He's the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, based in Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, and India. He's also the editor of Left Word Books, based in New Delhi. Additionally, he's chief correspondent for Globetrotter and the author of many books, including The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South, and Red Star Over the Third World. I talked with Vijay Prashad in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. On September 20th, uh, across the world, from Karachi to Kampala, four million people turned out in a climate strike, the largest such demonstration uh, in world history. Where do we go from that outpouring of uh, public demand for action? Firstly, it's, I think, very important that uh, so many people, particularly young people, uh, feel that this issue of the climate catastrophe is significant enough for them to uh, go out on the streets, um, put themselves in the front lines. Um, you know, you've got to give it to this young woman from Sweden, uh, Greta Thunberg. Also, of course, there are young people in different places. I think all of them really pulled it together to create this. I feel that the next step uh, needs to be some precision. A strike is good, but what are you striking against? Uh, are you striking against governments? I mean, the fact is that governments have shown themselves to be uh, not able to actually find a path out of this. There are a couple of issues that are very difficult for uh, the global agenda. For instance, you know, the plain fact is, number one, uh, the West has used up and more its uh, share of the so-called carbon budget. Uh, we just have to face that. Uh, secondly, you know, we have to think about the fact that uh, very many billions of people live in deprivation. So, you know, what's the point of saving the planet if the people are hungry? And so I think there has to be some thought about the West having completed its share of the carbon budget and then the rest of the planet needing uh, some I don't exactly know how to put it, but some space for development. And even the word development is so compromised. What I mean is a strike against hunger, a strike against illiteracy, it needs to widen itself from a climate strike because this is exactly what is blocking the debate. Countries like India, China, they are saying, look, we have uh, internal problems. We have problems of hunger and deprivation. We have to put this on the table. Are you going to contribute to the Global Climate Fund? And thus far, the contributions that have come from countries that have, you know, basically used up their climate budget have been very limited, very, very limited, you know, embarrassing. 
So these are the very complicated issues. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm glad you're on strike. It's another thing to say, who are you on strike against? Is it against all governments? Is it more precise against the governments of the West, which are really blocking the conversation? You know, are you going to tackle the Pentagon? The Pentagon is the largest institutional emitter of carbon in the world. You know, are you going to specifically target the Pentagon? So, I mean, these are the kinds of questions, David, that I think need to be now uh, on the table for discussion by these young people and others. But there's hardly any mention of the economic system in which all of this unfolds, and that is capitalism. And to invoke uh, Einstein, if I may, can you rely on people or a system that has created the problem to find a solution? Well, I I don't think you can rely on them. But let's uh, go back to that strike and let's accept that it was quite young in its, uh, you know, character, very young people. Uh, Many of them have no uh, experience in movements around issues of deprivation, hunger. In other words, issues that point the finger directly at capitalism. Um, People know intuitively that the planet somehow seems to be at a point of crisis and therefore they are angry and upset and they've come on the streets. But I think it's our role, you know, as people who have been in different kinds of movements people with different kinds of experience, not not to shut them down, but to welcome them to a broader conversation, to introduce some of these themes, you know. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's, a, I think, quite simple statement uh, around this issue of the Green New Deal. People say, let's move away from browning energy, brown energy, in other words, coal and petrol and so on, and let's go to green energy. But, you know, I I think let's pause here because in green energy, uh, you have very dirty production. I mean, after all, you have children in the Congo uh, going into mines, bringing out cobalt. You have uh, coal tan mining. You have mining of lithium, you know, in the in the area between Argentina, Chile and Bolivia. I mean, this is filthy stuff. This is stuff that's destroying the planet as well. So the green solutions are not so, you know, comforting either. There is no green capitalism that's going to save the planet. But these are, I think, you know, con- genuine conversations that we need to have with people who have been motivated to say, I want to do something. You've got to say, yes, you, you, you are doing something, you're on the streets, but let's have a much richer conversation about the possibilities of dealing with some of these other problems. And also, you know, this question of whether the Green New Deal uh, by itself is going to do anything. I mean, is it worth saving the planet if it means more children in the Congo are going to go on their hands and knees into the earth to bring out cobalt? Well, it has to be a global uh, New Deal, no, ma- no matter how pristine, let's say, environmental practices are in Sikkim or Bhutan or in the Ivory Coast. Unless there's a global approach, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I think people understand very much. They understand with, I think, some sympathy, the problem of small island states. Uh, they understand that you know, uh, erosion is happening of beaches and that already some islands have disappeared. I think this is now something that's quite well understood, quite well grasped. And so, yes, it has to be global. Yes, it's the temperature of the planet and so on. But what about the condition of life of people? You know, it's a curious thing. There are some parts of the world where we we have mines, where we bring out essential materials. And then, you know, the people who live there don't benefit from any of the commodities produced as a consequence of bringing out these materials. But some of these places then become the destination for trash. So they are the producers of the raw materials for consumer culture. And then they are the repository of the trash of consumer culture. You know, they have benefited from nothing of capitalism. They should be very much part, not only of the story, but of the struggle. Now, capitalism has its own unique genius in uh, presenting people with... uh so-called alternatives. So right now there's a lot of attention, at least in the United States, on plastic and how damaging it is, particularly to marine life. 
and the uh, atmosphere. So you have these one-off campaigns. Uh, let's recycle uh, cardboard and glass. No, let's also do plastic. Let's compost our food. But it doesn't get to the totality of the crisis. And then people get kind of uh, seduced. Well, I'm doing my part. I bicycle wherever I can. I try and drive a, an efficient uh, vehicle if I have to drive, etc. Well, in the United States, only 14% of waste is recycled. 5% is composted. 81% is essentially incinerated so or thrown into the ocean. Uh, let's just think about that again. Only 14% is recycled. And even that is no longer actually being properly recycled because as of this year, China has banned the import of trash. That means that U.S. trash, which used to go to be recycled in China, is no longer making that journey. And a very much lower percentage of that trash is being recycled. So people continue to put things in recycled bins and so on. I doubt very much that it's actually being recycled. Uh, let's assume that it's still at 14%. 81% of American trash is thrown into the ocean or is burnt. I mean, just think about that. I... I think that getting rid of plastics will be an enormous advance. You know, a lot of marine life will thank us. Uh, a lot of animals will be very pleased not to have plastic stuck inside their mouths and so on. So getting rid of plastic, it's a superb campaign. Go ahead and do it. But let's again pause and say 81% of American trash is thrown into incinerators, is thrown into landfills, and is tossed into the ocean. And the United States produces more trash per capita than any other people on the planet Earth. So when we say 81% of American trash, it's a very large percentage of the world's trash. And, and in that sense, uh, questions need to be asked about not only how people li are living, because I don't think this is a question of personal guilt, but it's a question of how the system functions, you know, uh, do you really need to uh, get a new car every three years? Because when you, you know, when you get a new car, the older car essentially is repurposed and sold to somebody else. But sometimes not. Sometimes it, you know, if it's in whatever shape it is, might just get put into a landfill. Refrigerators, uh, an obscenity. A refrigerator cannot be repurposed and sold in a global south country. Because American refrigerator is too large to fit in the kitchen of most countries around the world. So those refrigerators go straight into the, the, the landfill. You know, it's about the whole system of sort of obsolescence, you know, in order for us to keep buying commodities, keep taking credit, keep going into debt. I mean, this system is insane. And its insanity is destroying the planet. I mean, that's the basic point of it. You know, I'm not saying let's not have a campaign on plastics. I very much think marine life, very happy. Yes, ban, fine. But that's just a small fraction. What about the rest of your trash? It's been about four decades now of neoliberal economics, uh, privatization, austerity, cuts in benefits, rollback of regulations, and has produced an inequality on a scale rarely seen in history. Is this period of neoliberalization connected to the rise of autocrats, people like Bolsonaro, Kaczynski, Duterte, Erdogan, Orban, and Modi? Well, certainly. I mean, if you go back and look at why neoliberalism emerged as a policy, I think it's important to do that in order to understand this long period of 40 years. Um, for about almost half a century, 50 years, the global elites have been on a strike. You know, strikes are not only done by labor. Strikes are also done by the owners of property. They've gone on strike. And the mechanism of their strike has been twofold. One is they've been on a tax strike. They are refusing to pay tax globally. $32 trillion sit in tax havens. That's the amount we know about. By the way, that's seven times the value of all the gold above the ground. You know, seven times the value of all the gold that's ever been mined is sitting in tax havens. So they went on strike in that way, as a tax strike. There was a second kind of strike. Corporations went on an investment strike. You know, you see with the creation of the global commodity chain, corporations have no equity in small factories produced in Indonesia or in China or anywhere. You know, Apple produces no iPhones. It produces, it manufactures nothing. It outsources the production of everything. 
And that means that Apple as a corporation doesn't invest. It has no equity in those factories. The big Taiwanese company, Foxconn, that's the the company that actually invests in the factory in Shenzhen in China. Lots of other suppliers from Germany, etc. Little suppliers invest capital. The big oligopolical firms, big monopoly type firms, they don't invest anything. This is an investment strike. You know, they hold their capital back. They invest in some research and development and so on. So in this 50-year period, you've seen neither individual rich people pay tax, nor have corporations been paying corporate taxes, you know, because when they've liquefied all their assets, they put it into various instruments and they disappear. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion about illicit movement of finance. So what this has done over this 50-year period is it starved governments of money. That's the basic problem. Governments have not been able to raise taxes to do anything, uh, not only for the public good, but also for the public ill, you know, militaries and police and so on. So when the government has been starved, there are two basic ways to raise money for a government. You know, one way to raise money is deficit financing. You basically raise money against the future. You say that, you know, we want to borrow money now and then the children and grandchildren will pay for it and eventually we'll have growth and we can... There are models for that, deficit financing. The other is we'll sell our assets, what is known as privatization. So when um, these governments and municipalities and so on had a problem raising revenue because of the tax strike and the investment strike, at that point... Very interestingly, various balanced budget amendments get passed. You know, uh, in the United States, all around the world, governments are suddenly handicapped. They are told you cannot do deficit financing. If you do deficit financing, we will reduce your bond rating. We'll penalize you. The IMF will come and give you a bad scorecard. Then it's too expensive to borrow money. So in because this avenue essentially to raise finance was closed off, most governments then go to privatization. I mean, that, that's the origin of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism emerges because the rich and corporations are on strike. And because the avenue of deficit financing is closed off, they start to privatize, cannibalize and so on. The moment you do that, you have to understand that if you're privatizing and cannibalizing, uh, there is basically a, a rhythm to this. After some point, you don't have anything else to sell. You, don't have, you cannot cannibalize, you know, the bones. Uh, you've gone all the way down. So after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's harder to privatize things. And you have then serious crises where you start doing austerity. Austerity becomes actually the only thing governments can do. And it's, it is this whole thing of allowing the tax strike, the investment strike, allowing balanced budget amendments, putting forward privatization, this whole you know, ensemble, this repertoire of events delegitimizes the neoliberal politicians, the centrist politicians, you know, the old Labour Party in Britain, the Democratic, you know, party of the Clintons and so on, uh, and around the world, you know, the Congress Party in India and all these parties are delegitimized by this push to privatization, you know, the whole neoliberal slate. And because at this time, the left is extraordinarily weak for all kinds of reasons. The right basically outflanked everybody. And the right came in and said, you know, these people are stealing from you. We're going to help you. We are the people who are going to help the common person. See, this is the rhetoric of the left. They come with the rhetoric of the left. But you see, they are not going to point their fingers at the tax strike and the investment strike. Instead, they point their fingers at the migrant they point their finger as a minority. You know, this is classic authoritarian tactics. Scapegoating. Uh, scapegoating. But, and again, specific scapegoats. Uh, you know, uh, the, the migrant is a very big enemy. Takes your job, ruins your culture, all this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of toxic soup of politics that they put on the table. But you see, they are also saying we are going to help you because these other people have ruined your life. So they are right about that. They're very wrong about their own diagnosis of why this is the case. Partly because they themselves are enmeshed with those same elites that want to keep their money in tax havens and so on. And the left is weak. And until the left is able to regenerate, uh, you are going to have a very long period of these 
terribly toxic politicians. I mean, they are going to command the field for a very long time. And I think this is very unfortunate. You may get some reversals electorally, like you may have in the United States, Democrats win in another election. But because they don't have a project, they cannot break themselves out of it. They're not going to say to the rich, you know, as Bernie Sanders quite rightly said, there should be no billionaires in the planet. You know, why should there be billionaires? Like, how much money do you need? But this is not going to be able to be put into practice. And then the right is just going to return. And one of the elements I think we failed to talk about has been the attack on unions and uh, the whole evisceration of organized labor. You know, the attack on unions was both a subjective issue and an objective issue. Let's go to the objective one first. A um, series of developments took place over this last 60-year period, uh, some technological, some political, uh, that enabled corporations to have much more power globally. Uh, you had, for instance, technological breakthroughs of satellite technology, computer databases and things like that, which allowed corporations to basically say, Space and time is no longer a barrier. We, we know what's happening in, in Malaysia immediately. You know, we can keep our inventory uh, in a small office in Alabama, watching what's happening in our factories in Alabama, in Croatia, etc. Time and space is no longer a barrier. It's a very important development. Secondly, you had the move to container ships, which meant that, you know, you could now uh, bring goods from China to the, United, to the port of Los Angeles. Enormous ships would come in, three or four people as crew, on these large ships, you don't have a huge uh, workforce on the ship anymore. Cranes come, pick off the containers, put them on the back of a truck or a train, and that's gone to a sorting center, and goods can move, you know, within days. It's incredible. I mean, we remember the time when a ship came into port, stevedores had to climb on board, they had to come off with sacks, and it would take weeks to unload a ship. It's, a, it's an enormous thing to cut the time down. These two things are important. The third important factor is the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the third world's uh, attempt to create its own economic agenda, the almost opening up of China uh, brought enormous millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of workers uh, into the orbit of global capital. You know, and they were able to then do what is known as global labor arbitrage. Uh, they were able to find out where are wages uh, less for this level of skilled worker. I mean, global labor arbitrage is not very uh, as simple as it seems. It's not like you're looking for the cheapest wages. You're looking for low wages for that level of worker who can do that kind of work. And the moment you have now 3 billion manufacturing workers around the world at your service, you can very cleverly pick and choose. So these developments uh, produce what we call the global commodity chain or the global value chain. You take a factory, you break it up into five different components, 10 components, spread it around the world. I mean, this was the death of unions. Uh, this is the objective death of unions. Because now if I'm an auto manufacturer and I'm sourcing tires from firms, from factories where I have no equity, in other words, I haven't invested in the factory to produce tires. And there's six of you making tires. One of the factories, there's a strike. I stop getting tires from there. I get it from elsewhere. So those workers have no leverage on the company. So working class power is destroyed by the global commodity chain. That's the objective side. Subjectively, there was an attack on both unions as a concept, you know, saying that, for instance, why do you pay dues? It's a waste of your wages. Why don't you take it home instead? So there was a subjective attack. But I'm afraid this subjective attack was really irrelevant. It was not necessary. The objective basis of unionism was quite badly damaged. And unions have been struggling since then to understand what are its power capabilities. You know, there are some nodes where unions might want to concentrate, for instance, transportation, you know, database managers, people who make databases. If they go on strike, there's a serious problem for the corporation. If port workers go on strike, serious problem, because the whole global commodity chain is organized around, uh, you know, man maintaining, the, maintaining these databases, moving goods uh, through, you know, these containerized ships very quickly. So there are some nodes of powerful workers, but there are such small numbers of workers, you know, that uh, you can replace them quite easily. Few countries have been... Um damaged more than Greece. I was there a few months ago and had some conversations uh, with people and that really 
totally changes your uh, thinking when you actually meet someone like an architect whose job now is designing T-shirts for tourists. His two sons who are engineers are working in Denmark. Um, I met a woman who said, we have no hope here. So you see Greece, you know, subjected to severe austerity imposed by the EU and primarily the German banks. And there was a bad joke going around when I was there. The Greeks were saying, you know, we had two choices, German banks or German tanks. You know, they knew the tanks from the 1940s and now they're subjected to the banks. You know, it's uh, truly grotesque to see the situation in Greece. No question about it. I mean, the uh, party uh, or the rather the coalition Syriza uh, was not able to move an agenda uh, against the European Central Bank, the IMF, you know, the so-called Troika was not able to move an agenda. But I want to pick up what you said about this feeling of hopelessness and, you know, despair. Um in Greece, it's quite high because the Greeks also see themselves as Europeans. And there was a time when uh, the Greeks imagined that their lives would be a certain way. But, you know, if you travel to places in rural India, for instance, in Chhattisgarh, in Uttar Pradesh and so on, uh, this has been a multi-generational condition, uh, this condition of complete and utter hopelessness. I mean, you've seen when the Indian government uh, basically began to assassinate Indian agriculture from 1991 onwards, you know, by uh, doing several things, no price support for uh, agricultural goods, and most significantly, the killing of rural credit banks. I mean, government banks that provided credit to farmers. Uh, when they killed off all these parts of, you know, state support for agriculture, you basically said to agricultural workers and small farmers, goodbye. You know, you are going to be massacred by the big giant agribusiness firms. And from 1995 till, you know, very recently, what our numbers show is about 300,000 300, Indian farmers have committed suicide. I mean, it's unprecedented catastrophe. And it's not talked about enough. You know, even though people may say, well, I've heard something about those suicides in India. Why have they committed suicides in this period? Because the government has withdrawn from the, the practice of providing credit. No farmer around the world can function without credit. You know, you're not able to have enough savings uh, for buying seeds, for buying various inputs. So, you know, governments have been essential in providing, you know, various forms of support, whether it's resource support, you know, it can come through credit banks, it can come through the giving of seeds, through the giving of, of fertilizer and so on, the, that uh, there. And then, of course, the removal of price support. I mean, you cannot allow agriculture to be so-called marketized. You know, agriculture is the opposite of capitalism. There's something obscene. And we see this. You see massive, beautiful, productive soil in Brazil growing soya bean. Or in the United States, you know, massive hundreds, hectares and hectares of land producing corn to feed cattle, which is then slaughtered for human consumption. I mean, you're growing corn to feed the cattle. It's just insane. This is because of the market. You know, why, and then it creates, you know, unhealthy situation. People are eating too much meat. They're unhealthy. They, you know, body fat ratios are changing and so on because they're not eating fresh vegetables. Well, why aren't they eating fresh vegetables? Fresh vegetables are not productive to grow. I mean, that for a mass consuming audience. For that, you need some social support, you know, whether it's through the state or whatever. So, yes, I, I totally understand that Greece was highly victimized by this. But in Greece, there is also the sort of European backdrop, which is that they didn't expect to live like this. But in the third world, after the debt crisis from 79 to 1983-84, that debt crisis produced the exact same situation, you know, Hundreds of millions of people just saw their middle-class lives disappear. And in India, after 1991, millions of farmers saw farming disappear before their eyes. You're listening to Vijay Prashad on history and politics, zigs and zags, part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 triple four one nine seven seven that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or you can order online on our website alternative radio dot org 
That's alternativeradio.org. Now, speaking of of India, uh, a country that was once the leader of the non-aligned movement under Pandit Nehru, the first prime minister of the country, died in 1964. India was the, the champion of independent struggles against colonialism. It was a stalwart porter of Palestine. Uh, And today you have uh, India that has embraced Israel as an ally at the expense of uh, Palestine and has also embraced neoliberalism, as you said, starting in 1991. Well, let's start today. We are close to two months of complete suffocation of Kashmir. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Eight million people cannot telephone anybody. There was an earthquake in northern Kashmir. Uh, loved ones who were outside Kashmir couldn't get in touch with family. I mean, it's it's incredible. And there is no real global unhappiness about this. It's just seen as a normal thing. You know, states do this, right? Uh, no, states don't do this. This is outrageous. It, it's something that needs to be put at the forefront. Well, why mention Kashmir to begin with? Uh, because this is where the last 25 years and more have led us to this kind of obscenity. You know, this government of the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party, is basically remote controlled by one of the most toxic political organizations in the world, the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, RSS, founded in 1925, um, inspired by Mussolini. Uh, its leader, Golwalkar, openly wrote in his book of admiration for Hitler and what Hitler had done to the Jews. He says in his book, you know, we or our nationhood defined is the name of the book. He says that what Hitler did to the Jews, we should do to the Muslims. I mean, it is disgusting, the political tendency that now dominates India. And Modi has, I think, very successfully driven a majoritarian politics. And and this is the real limitation of democracy, you know. What is a democracy? A democracy isn't about elections. A democracy is not about allowing the majority to dominate. A democracy in a civilized world is one where the smallest minority feels completely comfortable to, you know, basically express itself in any way or form uh, inside the boundaries of that territory. That's a democracy. You test a democracy not by the strength of the majority, but by the confidence of the minority. And in India, unfortunately, this political organization, very much like Bolsonaro in Brazil, they drive a majoritarian politics to the extreme. And they take advantage of the fact that they win elections to make their majoritarianism legitimate. But I think we need to come back and redefine democracy. And I want to repeat this because to my mind, it's very important. A democracy isn't where the majority is powerful. It's where the minority feels that it can express itself freely. And if a minority group cannot express itself freely, it's not a democracy, even if you have elections. And therefore, I would say India is increasingly no longer a democracy. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter that there are elections. It doesn't matter that there is a judiciary. It doesn't. These things don't matter. Where is the democracy if a minority is unable to express itself freely? And in that sense, India is, is now the land of the RSS. Something that is very chilling. It, it makes me embarrassed to say this as a person, you know, as an Indian. It makes me very embarrassed. And the fact that this issue of Kashmir has popular support inside the rest of... I mean, that is extraordinary. And, of course, India likes to promote itself internationally as the world's largest democracy. And when it comes to propaganda, I think India has, the Indian state has been very successful in projecting an image of India as the land of Buddha and Gandhi. Uh, Everyone's a vegetarian, they're doing yoga, they're playing ragas on sitar, uh, and on and on. I mean, India, like many other places, has a rich cultural Offering, you know, I mean, yes, exactly. These things are interesting. And I I don't get upset with people who say, you know, I do yoga. Well, that's good for you. You know, uh, it's a good thing. It improves your well-being. It gives you a certain balance. It's okay. You, know, you like Indian music, good. You like Indian food, fine. You know, sometimes people get annoyed. You know, here I am, an Indian person. Somebody comes up to me, a stranger, and says, I like Indian food. Well, I don't find that offensive. I, I just find that that's how humans make connection. It's a stupid thing to say to a stranger, but, you know, you're not, you don't know what you're doing. I, I don't hold it against you. Indian government has used this 
very, very effectively. So Modi, for instance, in pushing this Global Yoga Day, uh, this day, International Day of Yoga, very clever idea. You know, he has positioned himself as a man who is the heir of Gandhi, the heir of Nehru even, even though inside India, they smash Nehru all the time. Outside India, you know, they say, I'm the heir of Gandhi. I mean, your political tendency assassinated Gandhi in 1948. An RSS assassin. An RSS assassin. You know, whether he was at that point a member of the RSS or not is not to me an important issue. He was shaped by the RSS. He was formed by the RSS. He had RSS ideology and he shot and killed Gandhi. Uh, your political tendency should apologize to the world for killing Gandhi. I mean, that's what I would say to them. But, you know, nobody says that. But let's also back up for a second. For 10 years, Modi was denied a visa to enter the United States. Explain why. Well, in 2002, Mr. Modi was the chief minister of the western state of Gujarat, a very, you know, important state in India. In fact, the state that produced Gandhi. Uh, and in uh, a moment of very, very heightened tension between Hindus and Muslims, there was an event that took place at a, at a town called Godhra. A train caught on fire. Uh, not clear exactly what happened. There's lots of forensic investigations, whether somebody from outside, you know, caused the fire, whether it was from inside an accidental fire. But some Hindu right uh, militants died in that. And then at, as, a, as a consequence of this, uh, a kind of wink and nod came from the government that you can't help it when people seek revenge. And there was mob violence, some of it orchestrated directly by politicians in Gujarat. Uh, they went to Muslim areas, they targeted Muslims, they killed them, you know, maybe 3,000, 5,000. You know, it's very hard to actually know what exactly happened in localities, how many people died. Lots of people who were grievously injured died later and so on. But it was a brutal assault on a community. And, you know, killing was one thing. The taking away of people's businesses has had long-term impact. Removing somebody from a small shop, uh, not letting them come back, seizing their businesses. This was routine. Uh, I must say the Human Rights Watch did a very good report uh, on this particular uh, uh, you know, act of, well, I'm not sure. Let's just say it and then it's controversial, but state-sponsored violence against the Muslim minority in Gujarat. Mr. Modi was the chief minister. And um, this is in 2002, when he applied for a visa to come to the United States, a lot of pressure was put on uh, various important institutions in Washington, D.C., raised the question of the BJP and RSS. Of course, there was uh, the killing of Graham Staines, a Christian in Orissa. He and his children burned to death. Uh, this had an impact on the sort of Christian right section in Washington, D.C. Burned to death by Hindu nationalists? By, by, by these RSS type people, Bajrang Dal, etc. Brutal fellows. They burnt this, these two young children to death. So because they were Christians, this had a role on the Christian right and so on. So a combination of people concerned about what's happening in India, etc. Put pressure and Modi was denied a visa for 10 years. From 2002... Essentially, just before he became Prime Minister of India in 2013-14. That entire period, he was banned from entering the United States. Now he comes and Trump holds his hand at a big festival in Houston. And Mr. Modi does something that I think is humiliating. Mr. Modi behaves, his body language with Trump was as if Trump is his superior and he is a subordinate. And at that rally, he says... In other words, he is campaigning. He is saying the next time again, a Trump government. You know, this was an echo of his slogan in 2013. This time a Modi government. I mean, it's obscene to see a head of government on a stage in Houston, Texas, you know, campaigning for Trump. And I'm saying this, David, because the Indian American population majority of it votes Democrat. Um, the African-American population is the highest, most loyal Democratic voter. And after that comes the Indian-American. And here we have an attempt 
to change the character, to bring this Modi wave into the United States and bring these Indian Americans um, into maybe the Trump camp or whatever. Modi joins the RSS at a remarkably young age. I've, I've read eight, eight years old when he first got involved with that organization and he became what's called a Pracharak, um, a missionary. Uh, and he has never renounced uh, his allegiance and affiliation with uh, the RSS. Well, Modi's entire history has been manufactured, by which I mean that we don't really know much about his early life. I mean, he was married, he abandoned his wife, she is alive, his mother is alive. But for some reason, they very, very carefully controlled and manufactured a myth of the early years of Modi. You know, he was a tea seller, he was a this. It all seems to me a little manufactured. No independent journalist has been able to get access to people to write an independent biography of the Indian prime minister. You know, everything you read is sort of hagiographic and, and has a tinge of falseness. But what's, I think admitted by everybody, including the hagiographies, is that from a very early age, he was with this sort of fascistic Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sang RSS. He was so committed that he used to sleep in their office. He was there all the time. He was like the fixer guy. He knew everybody. And importantly, he became the organizational man. Now, if you understand anything of political parties, the person who knows the organization, who knows who's in this town, who's in that town, your backstory, your histories, etc., you control the party. For years, he was a very loyal servant of other people. When he became the chief minister of Gujarat, he proved himself with this riot. I mean, it was like getting a license, uh, but that was not everything. Uh, he also made an attachment with a major industrialist called Gautam Adani. And he and Mr. Adani created essentially the so-called Gujarat miracle, where they basically turned over, used state funds to turn over land and resources to Mr. Adani, built a big port, put the whole weight of the state. I mean, it's essentially like the English East India Company and the British Crown. Mr. Modi put the whole resource, resource state behind this one man. And he, in turn, legitimized Modi to the business community around India. So even though there was always this stain of the Gujarat riot, uh, Adani and other big business people uh, projected Modi as a powerful prime minister. And very cleverly, in 2013, when he ran for election, as when he was leading the BJP uh, you know, against the Congress, he projected himself as the man for development against corruption and so on, not as the man of the riot. You see, you don't need to talk about the riot because all the people who are pro-killing Muslims already know that you have a license. The RSS has already given you a certificate. Now you just need to project to the corporates that I'm going to conduct what is known as labor market reform. And Modi has tried his best over the first and now second term to push labor market reform. And this is where he is having some trouble. Uh, it's not easy uh, to defeat the Indian, however weak they are. It's not easy to defeat the unions. There's still difficulty even within the ranks of the Hindu right of entirely so-called liberalizing hire and fire. On August 5th, as you alluded to, the Modi regime uh, revoked two key provisions of the Indian constitution relating to Kashmiri autonomy, uh, Article 370 and 35A. Can you explain why they are important? Firstly, it's, I think, crucial to talk a little bit about Indian independence. India had fought against the British and the British at one point basically understood that they no longer had the capacity to dominate the subcontinent. The last viceroy of India, Mountbatten, when he came to India, part of his charge was to so-called transfer power. It's a very important phrase, the transfer of power. Not that the Indians seize power, but you transfer power. Um, the question was raised of what will you do with the minority right issue? This question had been raised by Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the Muslim League, but it was also, I think, a genuine question of the Congress Party. You know, what is the role of minority rights? Things I had talked about earlier. Now, there's something quite interesting. It became quite clear to the British that the Nehru section of the Congress was not going to allow the British or the Americans to have access to bases in India. 
that was just not going to be on the table and there's some very interesting memorandums written about agreements that they could reach in pakistan with a new government over there you might know that up near um you know the waziristan area there were already very important british bases and the british and americans had begun to look at the architecture of the post uh, world war 2 era from 45 onward how to design you know a security arrangement for the so called free world against the ussr so you had the creation of the central treaty organization you know centered uh, in iran at, at one point but it was known as the baghdad pact the manila pact for the southeast asian treaty organization and they were keen on a south asian treaty organization but you know nehru was already so committed to the bandung project which comes in 55 but basically some sort of non aligned project he was so committed to that they knew he was not going to be a part of it you we have to understand partition in this context you know it's very odd how partition is always talked about in, inside indian history we forget this broader geopolitical context you know when pakistan is created very quickly there is a coup against the government and the military comes in no western power says that anything wrong with that and and then the government uh, of the military coup essentially joins the baghdad pact and bases come everywhere so they precipitated a departure you know the timetable was so short uh, they wanted to secure these bases all that. i mean it's an incredible how, how can you after 350 years leave in an afternoon you know there's got to be a process india was managed very badly in other words the British government didn't control directly all the landmass there were princes and kings and so on including the maharaja of kashmir a hindu monarch dominating a muslim majority province not province his kingdom uh, in the north of india very crucial strategic area you know maharaja uh, hari singh uh, hari singh was not keen on uh, giving uh, his kingdom either to india or pakistan wanted to maintain control it could have been an interesting period because there was a movement from below led by sheikh abdullah sheikh abdullah was an incredible man i mean he highly influenced by the communists um, including faz ahmed faz the poet who was in kashmir for a long time very influential on sheikh abdullah uh, there was uh, the bedis baba bedi and frida bedi a couple communists who came to kashmir they had met in cambridge Uh, she was an english woman in fact their son becomes an important film star in india kabir bedi uh, baba bedi and frida bedi were both communists baba bedi writes in 1946 the manifesto of the national conference called naya kashmir which calls for land reform a radical you know communist agenda for for kashmir the national conference is the kashmiri political organization right and interestingly it was formed as the muslim conference but as sheikh abdullah radicalized he decided to go in a secular direction secular socialist direction and this naya kashmir document largely drafted by baba bedi uh, the forward is written by uh, sheikh abdullah who opens it praising the ussr and saying you know this is the direction we have to conduct radical land reforms and so on so very radical document so you know what happens is when partition has to take place 47 right in 47 kashmir controlled by the maharaja does decides not to move in either direction there is a ragtag bunch of people who enter kashmir from the pakistani side you know they they were some people who came in they were marauders uh, with terrible stories of things that they'd done on the other side um this national conference organized a militia people's militia to basically take control of uh, of kashmir now imagine if they had conducted a revolution in 1947 and seized power from the maharaja and declared themselves the socialist republic of kashmir such a different history david that didn't happen sheikh abdullah decided to uh, trust nehru and really the roots of the kashmir issue come down to what is known as the articles of accession which was signed by the maharaja saying that i will come to india but this article of accession was signed with the proviso that kashmir have autonomy so in the indian constitution of 1950 there was article 370 and later article 35a what these did was they protected the land of kashmir so that other people could not come and buy land it's it's an important provision because in a sense i'd like to say that the article of accession should be seen as a provisional 
document. It's not a final document. The situation of Kashmir is not settled. I mean, it's a very controversial situation. Well, it was very fluid then. You had Pandit Nehru, the prime minister, promising a plebiscite and abiding by the wishes of the Kashmiri people. Exactly. And there was a UN mandate provided and so on. So I would like to suggest that the question of Kashmir should not be considered settled. It's an open question. You know, it's a democratic society, let's say. Imagine that the Indian constitution says it's a democracy. Well, then let's open the question of that historical event that took place in 47-48. The Articles of Accession, then in 1950, uh, Article 370, that provides certain provisions of autonomy for Kashmir. This uh, 370 and 35A, the RSS and the BJP, the right-wing governments, have wanted to remove them forever, since then. I mean, they believe that this is an abomination. Now, I got to tell you something else that's interesting, is that in fact, most border states, except Rajasthan and Punjab, in the Northeast, all the border states have autonomy. They, they have things that are basically 370 and 35A. But the BJP has targeted Kashmir. Why is that? I think it's because they hate Muslims. I mean, it's a basic thing. In Assam right now, they are trying to delegitimize the Muslim citizens of the state uh, through something called a national registry. You know, uh, they are using this registry saying you are not Indian citizens. You came from Bangladesh. Therefore, go back to Bangladesh. It's happening there as well. But they're not challenging the autonomy of the other states. Mizoram, you know, Nagaland. They're not challenging that. They're going after Kashmir. Now, it's an interesting issue. You see, it's a highly tense situation. Uh, it's one of the most militarized places on the earth. Uh, there are so many Indian troops there. 600,000. You know, there's a debated number. It could be more. We don't know. Let's say 600,000. Uh, there is a terrible situation with Pakistan. Uh, in other words, so many wars have been fought. Um, you know, the border is very insecure. I mean, look, I, I am not one of those people who says bring it all to India or give it all to Pakistan. I don't have an opinion. I, I'm, I'm actually, I feel a little awkward when people are so clear about what should happen in Kashmir. You know, I, I would like to say, let's start a process. You know, let's have a democratic process. But now we are so far from that. You know, India and Pakistan need to talk again. They need to be at the table talking about how do they understand this? The Kashmiri people have to be at the table. This is a very long process. You know, you can't say, oh, uh, Kashmir should be part of, in, uh, of Pakistan. But there are lots of Kashmiri who don't want to be part of Pakistan. Kashmir should be independent. Well, I mean, let's relax. This is a process. But what the BJP government has done is they've effectively closed the process in an authoritarian way by dismissing the legislature of Jammu and Kashmir. The elected officials have been dismissed. They've essentially jailed the whole population, including the leaders. It's a scandal. Not only can journalists not go in. In Kashmir right now, elected political leaders have not been allowed to go in. The former leader of the Congress party was on a plane with 17, 18 other leaders, including the heads of the two communist parties of other South Indian parties. You know, the DMK, one of the leaders was on the plane. They were going to fly into Kashmir. They landed in Srinagar and they were turned back. I mean, they were not even informed in Delhi airport that we're not going to allow you. They allowed them to fly to Kashmir, landed there and then sent them back. I mean, what is this? You know, these are leaders of major opposition. They should have the right to go anywhere in the country. But this begs the question now, is Kashmir part of the country? I mean, uh, the BJP says and other political parties says Kashmir is an integral part of India. If Kashmir is an integral part of India, any elected official or any leader of political party should be able to go anywhere because it's an integral part. By denying people access to the Kashmir Valley, Srinagar and so on, is the BJP now saying that Jammu and Kashmir is not an integral part of India? I would like the government of India to respond to that. Well, the basic, I think, question at hand is, do the Kashmiris have a right to self-determination? Yeah, I mean, this is on the table. This must be on the table. Again, the issue is, that's the question in abstraction. How do we get to this in practice? The governments of India and Pakistan need to talk. The Kashmiri people need to have the ability to start 
talking politically with each other all the factions including the so called separatists need to be at the table there has to be a conversation with people in the part of kashmir that's in pakistan all of this is part of a process it's a very long process you were just listening to vj prashad on history and politics zigs and zags part 1 of a special two part program I talked with him in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Vijay Prasad is a historian and journalist and director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, Chris Hedges, Tariq Ali, Bill McKibben, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of the complete two-part program, Vijay Prasad on history and politics, zigs and zags. Call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Again, that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Iqbal Bano singing the Fez Ahmed Fez poem Hum Dekhenge. Hello, hello. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW ninety point nine FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. Bon, 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 bon. Pour me, 
eyes the queen. You're my bad, just like machine. Gone, 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 gone. Why you go do? Why you wind your heart on you? Qui moi? Je suis la reine. Je suis fort. Ça c'est certain. Délicieux. Comme du bonbon. Comme du bonbon. Comme du bonbon. Comme du bonbon. Délicieux. Comme du bonbon. Comme du bonbon. Comme du bonbon. 